This week, the report investigating Russian meddling in British politics. We hear about the British soldiers who spied on the Soviets during the Cold War, and we look back on the November night 30 years ago when the Berlin Wall came down. I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP. A report into Russian interference in British politics has been written by Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee, but we can't read it. Downing Street has decided not to publish it before next month's general election, even though the document was completed in March. Well, Number 10 says it needs more time to prepare a response. I'm joined by Jonathan Isle, International Director at the Royal United Services Institute, as well as BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, I said we can't read it, but you've read parts of it. What does it say? The embarrassment thing for the government is the is the fact that there's a suggestion that certain Russians, uh, including oligarchs who live in London, businessmen who live in London, um, who are who have been influencing, um, perhaps conservatives, uh, perhaps businessmen, uh, who can inf- influence government. And now, in time of election, this becomes very sensitive, as it has before. And it's also suggested that in in, in elections past, the Russians have had an influence. Uh, they can invite people to to to, uh, well, I suppose, receptions and, and and quiz them and say, well, why don't you do the following, etc. Too much influence stinks of Trumpism. Now, the point is, this has been cleared by the uh, SIS, the uh, MI6. It has been cleared by the Cabinet Office, which looks at all the different agencies who got an interest in this. And all the names have been blacked out. But nevertheless, this theme that are the Russians, you can imagine the headlines, are the Russians actually running the election? Are the Russians running Boris? That is the thing that they don't want to even get into. Jonathan Isle, what do you think of the government's defence of not publishing this report? Well, I think that the key element and the key defence, uh, it would be exactly as we've heard, which is that um, the the mere discussion will bring, will embroil us in another debate about how robust our electoral system is in the run-up to the elections on uh, 12th of December, and that in many ways we could end up paradoxically doing Moscow's bidding. Let's remember very often what we've seen in terms of Russian influence has not been necessarily to uh, direct the electorates in a particular outcome, uh, but simply to create mischief, simply to discredit uh, uh, the uh, robustness of democratic institutions and the whole process, the electoral process. That has been the Russian technique in many countries around the world. So I think the government's view would be that releasing this document at this stage will actually play directly into the Russian objectives of raising even further questions about how equitable our electoral process really is. Mm. How How much Russian influence do you think there really is? It's very difficult to portray. I think the most difficult bit is to actually calculate whether they have changed the electoral dial. I think the consensus among a lot of people looking at it is that they have not done so. But what they have succeeded is very often changing the electoral debate, the narrative, 
and creating a sense of cynicism. So if you look at the involvement in the 2016 American presidential elections, they have succeeded, the Russians have succeeded by what they've done to create the image that the outcome was not accurate or fair, that one side won unfairly, that there is a further destabilization of the American system, and that at the end of the day, everyone cheats and the whole system is a cynical manipulation. Uh, that has been the major uh, Russian success, and in many respects, it's a stupendous success. If we remember that only a few years ago, we were holding up Russia as the ogre in Europe, and we were holding up our electoral systems as the most perfect ones to copy. So in many respects, there's been a big success of Moscow, but probably not in terms of actually affecting an electoral outcome. Mm. Christopher Lee, uh, the commander of the fleet, Vice Admiral Jerry Kidd, reckons Russia is a serious threat. Yes, he does. And also he says that when you look at the orbit, the order of battle, for example, as the military does all the time, of, you know, you know, what is the size of the tank armies, what is the size of the northern fleet, Pacific fleet, etc. It's not just that you should be looking at. The military isn't just looking at sort of hardware. It's things like this, the influence on the political system that we have, that makes us understand far more clearly, if not the ambitions, but the possibilities and the miscalculations that you have with two opposing sides, and that's how the military sees it at the moment. And talking, I mean, with, with the Admiral, he talks about sort of saying, you know, take something like uh, the aircraft carriers, the two aircraft carriers, and all the support ships and submersibles that you've got with it. If you don't have that sort of uh, thing. You've got no response to uh, what is quite possible with, with let's say, with, with, with Russia or even, even China. But the point being, if the, the side issues, and this is the influencers in, let's say, in London, get close to the people who may be able to influence the size of defence budgets or types of budgets they should have, and then if you don't do that, you are making a mistake and you have weakened your defence uh, opposition, your defence opposition to any uh, influences that Russia might have in other ways. Let's talk briefly about other potential threats. Uh, Jonathan Isle, a report by the IISS says that Iran has come out on top in the struggle for influence in the Middle East with its great rival Saudi Arabia. What do you make of that? Well, I think it's a very serious thing because we're witnessing a Middle East that has about three phenomena happening at the same time. A U.S. Uh, desire to withdraw from the region and therefore much less of an engagement. Uh, an image of the United States as a power in decline, which is catastrophic for American influence in the region. An Israel that is paralyzed by internal political uh, discussions and an inability to elect a decisive government. And then a new competition for spheres of influence between Russia, Turkey, uh, and Iran, all of them powers outside the Arab world. The problem for a lot of European countries is that we are witnessing developments which are happening on our, on our doorstep, which are extremely serious. Uh, just think uh, uh, Libya 
is 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 a non-functioning state. Uh, Syria is in the throes of internal troubles, as we've known. Uh, Lebanon is is a non-functioning state to all intents and purposes, and Iraq is experiencing internal convulsions again, with the Iranians being uh, having a finger in almost every one of these pies. And the problem for the Europeans is that we don't like what we see. We come up with a lot of ideas about how we would want the Middle East to be, but at the end of the day, without American commitment, guidance and leadership, we end up doing nothing. On that note, Jonathan Isle, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you for your time. Jonathan Isle, International Director at the Royal United Services Institute. Still to come, the British soldiers who spied on Soviet troops during the Cold War and memories of the night the Berlin Wall came down. Former Defence Secretary Sir Michael Fallon has said he believes Russia is a threat to Western democracy. He's leaving the Commons for good after deciding not to run for election again. Laura Macon Isherwood spoke to him ahead of his departure. He is one of the Conservative Party's most recognisable faces, a man who has spent almost half his life in Parliament. But Sir Michael Fallon has his own views on present-day democracy, and there is one nation that he says poses a serious risk, and that's Russia. Uh, Russia is clearly a threat to this country and a threat to democracies right across Western Europe. Do you think that the 2019 general election will be completely free of any interference from Russia, social media, other campaigns? Well, I hope so. It's difficult to police uh, social media, and I think people are aware of the danger. But if you'd told me, you know, 10 years ago that Russia would try and influence an American presidential election or try and influence a referendum in the Netherlands or, you know, Russia would intervene in the Balkans, in Montenegro, in the way that it tried, you know, I, I simply wouldn't have believed it possible. So we should never underestimate Russia's capacity for causing trouble, for intervening, for messing up the democratic process. But I would hope, you know, voters particularly are, uh, you know, are wise to that now. Sir Michael speaks from an informed position. He did, after all, spend three and a half years as Defence Secretary, overseeing the end of Operation Herrick in Afghanistan, the start of Operation Shader in Iraq and airstrikes in Syria, and says he managed to stem cuts to the defence budget too. Was it as difficult a job as people make it out to be? It's difficult when you come into defence if you're not an expert in defence or if you haven't had the privilege of serving, which I hadn't. So there was an awful lot to pick up uh, very quickly. And that summer I was appointed, 14, of course, was the start of the Daesh uh, Caliphate in Iraq and Syria. And it was also the, the shooting down of a, the airliner in the Ukraine. And the, uh, uh, we, had, um, we had to send a, a force down to uh, Sierra Leone to deal with Ebola. So there was an awful lot to get to grips with very quickly. You were in there for three and a half years. The last three defence secretaries have not taken up that time between them, Gavin Williamson, Penny Morden and Al Ben Wallace. Why do you think it's so difficult to hang on to a defence secretary? Well, it shouldn't be. My view, having been in four Whitehall departments, is that it takes you at least a year, really, to get under the skin, particularly of a big department, uh, to get to know people, to see where your priorities should lie and to you know, fix, fix your own... Uh, your own course and uh, I think you know if you're unlucky if you lose if you lose your position uh, within a single year I think two years you know is, is fair enough I was very very fortunate to do three and a half. 
While he is proud of what he achieved in that time, Sir Michael faced controversy too. His resignation from the Ministry of Defence in 2017 came after claims he touched a journalist's knee. Did you ever think that that would ever re-emerge? Um, I think that particular incident was, was rather a long time ago, but, um, uh, but there you are, that's politics. Do you still think that resigning was the right thing to do over that? Oh yes, I was in no doubt it was right to uh, resign. I was championing a code of conduct for the armed forces, and it's right that the Secretary of State should be held, uh, you know, to the highest uh, to the highest account. Do you wish that you could have ended your political career still as a minister? Well, these these uh, you can never time your, the, the way your careers end. Uh, you know, some people uh, you know do it for a couple of years and then resign. Um, I think if you're lucky enough to be given defence, you should, you should give it your, your best shot. But I think it was Enoch Powell who said all political careers in the end end in failure. How do you think it's going to feel in a few days' time packing this office up, shipping out and leaving Portcullis House? Obviously you have memories. I have particular memories of defence. Um, uh, working with some wonderful people who've given up you know, their lives in that kind of service in the Army, the Navy and the RAF and seeing them right across the globe and working with them at all hours of the day and night. Um, those, those are memories I will always keep. That was former Defence Secretary Sir Michael Fallon talking to Laura Macon Isherwood. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee was listening to that. Uh, Christopher, interesting to hear him talking like that when he's not talking to a brief, isn't it? It is. Uh, there are two points. I mean, one is an irony, isn't it? Is that Michael uh, Fallon was chosen to be Defence Secretary because he was considered to have the a safe pair. He was a safe pair of hands. Of course, it was an unsafe pair of hands that actually got rid of him in the end. But the other thing is interesting when he talks about working with the military. It is the only ministry, apart from the Foreign Office, where the practitioners, i.e., the military themselves actually work alongside the minister. They work in every department in the ministry. And therefore, that's a very special arrangement, a uh, very special understanding. And he said it takes you a year to start, begin to sort it out. Well, um, you may never do that, but he had a reputation of, uh, of getting pretty close to it. And I think the military were very sorry when he went. You think he was a good defence secretary? I think he was an exceptional defence secretary. Uh, I mean, when you when you think of all those things that happen, I mean, one of the problems of being defence secretary, you've got to have a response in cabinet. You walk into cabinet, and as you walk through the door, somebody hands you a piece of uh, a notice and says, "There's some non-democracy is now shooting from the hip in a place called Waikikakau or something like that." And what are we going to do about it? And do we have a ship nearby uh, because uh, one of the tankers has been sort of uh, hijacked or? or and etc. You've got to have a response all the time. And the Defence Secretary um, is a man who always has to have a response, along with the Foreign Secretary. They're very, very similar jobs. And sometimes uh, you can imagine sitting alongside them, beside so, each other, and sorting out the world. And that is part of it. If you haven't sorted, if not sorting out the world, you've always got to be prepared to go and sort out the world or go with somebody who will try to do so. Uh, and then at the time, and, and then you have to come to the reality. And that is that the defence, the defence ministry, is probably the third, fourth highest spending spender in Whitehall. Mm. But your position of influence in the cabinet is probably somewhere in the region of number twelve. That's a difficulty for any person to sort of carry. And he carried it with exception. Christopher, stay with us. 
Now, this Saturday, it will be 30 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall. The concrete barrier separated West Berlin from its communist East German surroundings, including East Berlin. Later on, we'll hear what it was like to be in the city when the wall came down. But first, let's hear a little-known story about British Army spies working in East Germany at the height of the Cold War. We were spying, and um, they knew it, and we knew they knew it. I can zoom in on Can you get the numbers? There's no question it was dangerous. I mean, fatality. Now, a lot of people were very, you know, rammed. They were pushed off the road. They were shot at. It was clearly dangerous. Thirty years ago, if we'd have been caught here, we'd have been shot. You know, no doubt about it. Uh, and now just shows you, so what we risked our lives and limbs for to get intelligence information all those years ago now, of course, is all freely, freely available. He was warned, but he uh, sort of ignored the warning and he was shot. They had to cover up the chief of staff. We were in the backyard and that, yeah. there will probably never be a time in history uh -huh. when we will have this kind of an opportunity again. Yeah. Well, that was a taste of a Forces News documentary about the British soldiers who crossed the border into East Germany to spy on Soviet military activities. Well, I'm now joined by one of those men who you heard there, Dave Butler, and Rosie Layden, who made the programme, is here too. Uh, Dave, this mission was called Bricksmiths, wasn't it? What was it all about exactly? Um, it was set up after the uh, Second World War when uh, the then allies, the Russians, us, the Americans and the French, decided to um, that we needed really to keep an eye on each other and so there was an agreement set up called the robertson Malinin Agreement and under that agreement it allowed liaison officers, as we were called, to liaise with um, the Eastern forces and act really as a conduit between them and the Western forces uh, in order to uh, liaise with, with both sides and... Um, that was the overt side, and on the covert side, of course, it was to it was to look at their technology and gain as much intelligence as we could. So the East Germans, the Soviets, they knew you were there. Absolutely, yes, and we and we didn't hide the fact. You know, we had modern vehicles, um, and we had uh, British Army uniforms with Union Jacks on it. Rosie, um, tell us about the documentary. Where did you go and what did you see exactly? Well, the whole idea behind the documentary was 30 years later to go back with Dave in particular and some other veterans from Bricksmiths and, and in fact, American veterans as well. Um, because I just found these stories absolutely fascinating, um, the lengths that they would go to to get some of the information. It was all about troop movements and the kit. So, you know, Dave was telling me about being, yes, the Russians knew they were there, but they weren't supposed to go everywhere that they went. So there was a time when they were caught behind enemy lines, they had to seek refuge in an East German pub, and they just seemed to me to pick up anything they could lay their hands on that they thought would be useful. <laughs> and um, and going back there 30 years later, I had to hold Dave back from... Um, he was scavenging, just, was he? was scavenging all over again, <laughs> you could see him reliving it. it was Dave, real, what was it like amazing. going back 30 years later? Yeah, it was pretty surreal, really, to uh, find myself on that tank range, you know, over near the Polish border, some 33 years later. You know, it was it was like having flashbacks all the time, and um, 
and, and, and very good to go back and actually do that. I mean, you saw, there was an overt and a covert side to what you were doing, wasn't there? Did you have a very clear idea of what you were looking for and what was needed? Yeah, absolutely. Every time we went out, we were given a target list of what we had to look at, the latest intelligence that the West wanted, and uh, we went and did our utmost to get it by any means that we could. And how useful was the information you gathered, do you think? Uh, We used to get the odd feedback from the intelligence agencies, um, and it was always very positive, and sometimes they were absolutely amazed at what we had found on the ground, that our satellites in the sky were telling a different story. Mm. I mean, you were all sort of like spying on each other, weren't you? Um, and in certain situations, um, the intelligence gathering led to misunderstandings by perhaps the other side as to what you were looking at and why. Can you give us an example? Um, yes. Uh, one particular one was that uh, on our maps, we weren't allowed to put any information at all. But one of the things we did always mark on there was little Zs, which was where we used to sleep at night. And the other one was little ice cream cones, Um, that we used to put on there to indicate ice cream stops because we would always do that in order to Because ice cream was what you could really get in that part of Germany, in East Germany in those days, wasn't it? That was the one thing you could get hold of. And and it was lovely as well. (laughs) I could recommend East German ice cream any day. And what was the misunderstanding exactly? Uh, When some of our vehicles got uh, overturned and and the equipment turned out, the Russians thought that uh, we had identified either sites where we were going to let off nuclear detonations or where their where their because nuclear of the shape of the were. icon that was on there exactly the little v-shape with the cloud above it they thought these were nuclear detonations which caused some amusement to us when we found out and, and as part of this actual program going back you met people didn't you on the other side who were spying on you that must have been an interesting moment yes it, again it, it's very surreal to meet the enemy up front you know uh, in the case of you know the soviet external relations branch officer sergey savchenko and what was he like oh uh, very charming now you know of course back <laughs> Wouldn't then Wouldn't have been then no <laughs> back then he was he was you know the enemy and so it was good to hear what he thought and what we thought mm. you know each other was doing mm. Well, uh, Rosie, um, just tell us when the programme will be on exactly. Um, It's on tomorrow on Forces TV. That's Friday, the 8th of November, at 9 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock UK time. And it's also going up on YouTube um, in a series of parts. So one of them's live at the moment on our YouTube channel. Great. Thank you. And Dave Butler, great to speak to you. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. So what was it like to be in Berlin on the night the wall came down? Well, one member of the SITREP team was there. Jamie Gordon was a very junior presenter for BFBS in Berlin in 1989. These days, he sits on the other side of the SITREP studio wall, pushing the buttons that make it all happen. So we thought it would be nice to send him back to the city to remember that extraordinary time 30 years ago. West Berlin was a unique place. Completely encircled by a wall, it was a glitzy, vibrant and hedonistic village trapped inside a black and white, dour and communist German Democratic Republic. On the 9th of November 1989 in Berlin, it was another cold night in an extraordinary city. BFBS Radio had a satellite station which contributed to the Germany network and that night it was Berlin's turn to host the Night Spot programme from 10 until midnight and I was the presenter that night. Something was happening at the wall but I couldn't report it. I'm on a military radio station in a sensitive location. I couldn't speculate. I went to bed oblivious as to what was going on until the following morning when my colleague Alan Phillips stood in my bedroom in my mum and dad's quarter hauling me out of bed. You're on the lunchtime show, Jamie. The wall's fallen down. 28 years and three months after the Berlin Wall went up, 
the very symbol of east-west divide and the most amazing scenes. I'm standing on top of the infamous Berlin Wall right in front of the Brandenburg Gate. There are thousands and thousands of Berliners alongside me. Over in the east, the sun is shining on the radio tower, the rays reflecting in the form of a cross on its glass. Berliners say that this cross is a symbol of hope that one day Berlin will be one again. That was my boss Patrick Eade with a wonderful first-hand account of the famous scenes at the gate on the morning of the 10th. Overnight, because of a misunderstanding by an East German official, all checkpoints in the city were open and the most famous symbol of the Cold War was effectively gone. Heidi Brower learned her English by listening to BFBS in Berlin. She lived in the East and used to call the station from a different payphone because if she'd been caught communicating with the enemy, she would have gone to jail. She found out about the fall of the wall very early on the 10th. Our phone was ringing and my daughter was on the phone and said, uh, don't be frightened, I'm, I'm calling from the east, I'm in the east. I said, how can you dare? The police will catch you, so you have no chance to come. What did you do? I jumped over the, over the Brandenburg Gate. I said, can't be, oh yes, yes, the, the wall is open. I could believe it and then we switched on the, the TV and we saw it was. It, it really was. The wall was open. The fall of the wall caught everybody by surprise. In fact, several senior officials were away from the city and the world's press were yet to arrive. Barry Davis was a Berlin veteran serving with the Royal Military Police, who, along with other units in the city, really played their part. The whole thing was peaceful. It was a party atmosphere. And then, of course, one day later, the world's media descended on the Brandenburg Gate. The RMP were here the whole time. The military were absolutely amazing. The Royal West Fusiliers had deployed from Kladau and they were here and basically handing out soup, handing out tea to all the East Berliners coming in. It was bitterly cold. Nobody cared. The sect bottles, they were popping all the time and people could not believe what was happening. The sense of euphoria was incredible. It felt like the biggest party that the world had ever seen, and it was happening on our doorstep. BFBS presenter Alan Phillips went to Checkpoint Charlie. The scenes, as you may well imagine, are absolutely ecstatic here. Thousands upon thousands of West Berliners and now some East Berliners crammed into the western side at Checkpoint Charlie. There are people climbing the scaffolding that builders are using to reconstruct some of the buildings in the neighbourhood. As people come through, they're cheered. Someone is handing a bottle of uh, sect to the occupant of each car for a quick squig, the bottle's given back and on to the next person. People coming through just for a visit, just for lunch, and we're going back this afternoon. In the days that followed, the city remained in party mode. East Berliners collected their welcome money of 100 West Marks from the banks, which were open at all hours of the day and night. But as you heard in Alan's report, they didn't stay in West Berlin, and in a phrase that was coined in the aftermath, they came, they saw, and did a little bit of shopping. That was Jamie Gordon reporting from Berlin. And if you'd like to hear more about that time in November 1989, Jamie's made an hour-long programme called Berlin 30, Fall of the Wall, which is on Forces Radio BFBS at one o'clock on Saturday afternoon. Well, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, was listening to that. Christopher, you, you too, you were there when the wall came down, weren't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was. Incidentally, the 100 marks that everybody was given... Uh, the East, what was called then the German Institute, did a re some research about two years later on what people bought with 100 marks. 
And you won't believe this. They bought bananas and, and, and pornographic movies. <laughs> yeah, I can believe That's what they mainly spent the money on. Now, yes. the bananas, I can imagine it. But anyway... Um, because yeah, I, I was yeah. I was in um, East Eastern Germany shortly after the wall came down. I remember the arrival of bananas was a big, a major, a major event. Fresh bananas, because as I was saying earlier, um, ice cream was the only thing you could get as a takeaway That's at the right. time. And, and then suddenly you got you got other things. I think hot dogs came in and things like that, or bratwurst. So. But bananas, how yeah. to open these <laughs> bananas? Things. Yes, go on. Sorry, you were saying. Yeah. But but, but the, the the other thing was which I remember quite clearly uh, was through the Brandenburg Gate. People coming through and not knowing what they should do. Mm. It wasn't a question you should just come through and start cheering. I mean, cheering is one of those things, somebody next to you shouts, you shout. But they didn't know what to do. Mm. And then when it got dark, they go home. So that's why they went home. <laughs> and it was as simple as that. Yeah. I mean, suddenly you could say it's like the ground emptying at a, at a game. Mm, just but be- it was very interesting. Just brief, anyway. briefly before we finish today, um, you, you wanted to mention something about another closed country, North Korea. Um, yeah, I tell you what, uh, Kim Jong-un is getting his family together. Now, if you're a member of the Kim Jong-un family, you may not want to get together because mm. you've got a habit of, uh, as he did with his uncle, Chang Song-chak, and also with his, his half-brother of, of, of uh, having him assassinated or, or, or murdered. Um, he has called home after 40 years of being out wow. of North Korea, he's called home his uncle, Kim Jong-il. Uh, and Kim Jong-il is not quite clear why he's bringing him home. That may be to sort of get the family back together, um, but nobody's quite sure, especially Kim Jong-il. So That would be some family reunion, wouldn't it? That would be a family reunion which... King Pyong Il may not really want to go to. Mm. Christopher, thank you. That's it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and to you for listening. Join the discussion on Twitter. Follow us at BFBS SITREP. We'll be back again at the same time next week. From me, Kate Chabot, thank you very much for listening. Bye bye for now. <laughs>